Good morning and welcome again. If you haven't been joining us this summer, um, we are focusing on the parables of Jesus. I find the parables to be provocative and enigmatic. The laying out of a countercultural kingdom that is so drastically different than the one that the original audience had imagined. The parables at first glance seem like nice little stories, but they pack a punch. And we would do well to dismiss our preconceived ideas and notions about God and the world. I think that is what I find so difficult and yet so gratifying about the parables that they require us to check our every assumption, religious or otherwise, in order to understand them. Luke 13 comes on the heels of a round of hard-hitting parables and difficult sayings. The parable of the barren fig tree is just one of these parables and comes in a handful of agricultural parables. And if you're familiar with the landscape of Palestine, the surrounding hills, the beautiful green hills, you would immediately understand that Jesus is crafting these stories around what he can see and touch and taste. Jesus uses the ordinary to explain the extraordinary. He compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed or a woman baking bread or a farmer in a field. And in doing this, he affirms his love for the earth. You see, matter matters to Jesus. Ordinary places and people and things are of great importance to this God. And the parables have much to say to us now in a time where much of what we are doing is not adventurous or extravagant, but ordinary and quiet and humble. You will find the heroes in these stories are, are not wealthy or powerful. They do not belong to the major religious groups or ethnic majorities. They are the people who plant and pick our produce. They are the women that bakes our bread. They are the Samaritans, the foreigners, the humble ones, those who voluntarily sit at the kids' table. Because in God's kingdom, there is a grand reversal, and that's precisely what makes Jesus and his stories such a threat. The Jews in first century Palestine were waiting. They were stuck in a holding pattern, oppressed by the government, burdened and bullied by the religious leaders. They were waiting for the kingdom of God to save them from this political and religious nightmare. They hoped and they prayed that their redemption was near, that justice would be served to their enemies, that they would escape the tyranny and the drudgery of the world around them, but their prayers seemed to go unanswered. And believe me when I say they had some very real ideas about what their redemption would look like. They were hoping for revolution for world domination, complete and utter annihilation of their enemies. But nothing seemed to be happening. Change seemed impossible or slow at best. 
Still, they hung on to some future hope, distant though it may seem. The people were hungry for hope. And and we know this because in the beginning of Luke chapter 12, it says that this audience had gathered in thousands, so many that they were trampling one another. You can imagine it's like Walmart on Black Friday. People are on top of other people. And Jesus begins to speak first to his disciples and then to the crowd. People gathered because Jesus's messages were compelling. His parables were freckled with unexpected twists and unsung heroes. This is why the people were gathering in such multitudes. All of a sudden, someone was speaking to their struggle in their language about something that mattered to them. And in the beginning of chapter 13, just preceding the parable of the barren fig tree, the crowd is catching Jesus up on the news. Check in with me at chapter 13, verse 1. It says, There were some present at the very time who told Jesus of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered thus? Jesus said, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? He says again, I I tell you, no, but unless you repent, You will all likewise perish. This is the context for the parable of the barren fig tree. This is the setup for what comes next. And in Luke 13, verse 6, he tells the parable. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Lo, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it take up the use of this ground? And he answered him, let it alone, sir, this year also, till I dig about it and put on manure. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. You see, the expectation for the original audience would be that God would intervene and turn this fruitless tree into a flourishing one. After all, this is a recurrent theme over and over again. We see in the Old Testament, God's intervention makes fruitful once what was barren. But that's, that's not exactly how this parable goes. And let's be honest, that's... Not really how this life goes either. I know many of us have countless prayers that seem to go unanswered and disappointments that have stacked up. But first things first, we need to know a little bit about the fig tree so that it can help us make sense of the story. You see, in the ancient Near East, the fig tree was the most valuable of all trees. Figs were one of the principal fruits of Palestine. The fig tree was indigenous to that region of the world, and the first crop of figs was considered a delicacy. 
fig trees bore crops three times a year. And it was only in April and May that they did not bear fruit. Fig trees were planted among the vineyards as a backup. And while fig trees were very fruitful, it took three years to produce any fruit at all. Remember that. The fig in the Old Testament was always associated with the vine. And and it was always seen as a symbol of peace and prosperity to the people of Israel. This is what would have been on the forefront of the minds of those who were listening. It was also believed in that time that failure of the crop and destruction of the tree was a grave misfortune and a direct punishment from God. I believe this is why Jesus tells this story. He has to directly address the assumptions that the tragedy and misfortune are connected in any way with the divine. Jesus wants his listeners to know that it is not a person's death or the manner in which they die that should determine their legacy, but the way in which they live their life. This parable seems to refute any popular theology that would assume that tragic deaths are in any way a punishment from God. Jesus did say that the people had some waking up to do, some repenting, some turning around. There were a lot of layers there, a lot of biases, a lot of assumptions to unravel, a lot of unlearning and relearning. The analogy of the fig tree would have been of interest to the hearers because what we know of the fig tree is that it's rarely barren. This would have piqued their, in, their, their interest in the subject. We know from what we've heard that fig trees are predictable and they bear fruit almost all year round. The parable of the fig tree would have in some ways been synonymous to the parable of the good Samaritan. In the minds of the hearers, Neither of those two things could exist. But that is the beauty and the danger of the parables of Jesus. They cause us to question all of our assumptions about the way the world works and about the way God works. Jesus rarely does what is expected of him. Is it too soon to ask the question, What does this parable mean? Some commentators talk about this being a last chance for the Israelites. This was God's last warning before punishing them. But the parable seems to speak of a patient gardener, one who does not want to give up on this sad little tree. A gardener who seems to know that it takes time to bear fruit. It seems to me that this parable is a call to life. Over and over again, we see God gives Israel opportunities to repent, to unlearn and relearn, to imagine a different future, to live a life completely different, to bear fruit. The prophets, though they may seem like finger-wagging old men, 
are actually just so deeply connected to the earth and to the people and to the divine that their hearts are breaking at what they see. The systems of injustice and mistreatment of the poor and marginalized. The structures of power are collapsing and the prophets have been desperately trying to reimagine a better future for Israel. And like the late prophet Martin Luther King Jr., they dreamed of the way that life could be. The prophets of old had dug trenches and put on dung and nothing seemed to be growing. The Israelites' idea for a better future were short-sighted and small at best. At worst, they were destructive and violent, only wishing power or complete annihilation over their enemies. Jesus is offering a wake-up call, an opportunity to see things in a completely different way, an invitation to a whole new way of life. But as you know, even God cannot force Israel or anyone for that matter to turn around, to choose love and justice over power and greed. So what does this parable have to say to us about Israel's predicament? What does it have to say to us about our own predicament? You see, in this season, Israel was taking up space, water, and nutrients that could be useful to the rest of the vineyard. Israel, over and over again, fails to realize its potential and could not seem to live life on Yahweh's terms. Because of this, Israel had become part of the problem complicit to the systems that were doing such great harm. And just like in these tumultuous times, we are not so much in danger of God's wrath as we are in danger of our own ignorance. We are not so much in danger of God's wrath as we are in danger of our own ignorance our own unwillingness or inability to listen, to learn, to grow. Israel, you see, was in great danger of destroying itself because they did not bear the fruit of justice, mercy, and humility. The Old Testament and the New Testament resound a different way of life. And Yahweh, all throughout the Judeo-Christian scriptures, makes it clear that this way of life will prevail by whomever is open to it. And it's interesting that this way of life is often modeled by the Rahabs and the widows and the lepers, and the prostitutes, and the children, and the Samaritans, and the blind. Those that seem to be able to see more clearly the path of life. I think the tree is a symbol of everyday life. And the parable is left open-ended, seemingly unresolved. We don't, we don't know if the tree bears fruit. 
This tree mirrors our disappointments, our efforts to do good, our failures, our spiritual droughts, those times when nothing seems to be happening. Sound familiar? I feel like this sums up the year 2020. This season of COVID-19 has been a season of waiting and limbo, of sheltering in place. And I don't know about you, but growth has felt incredibly slow in these last few months. Maybe growth is slower because it feels easier to numb when we are grieving and fearful. The Israelites could relate. They were waiting too. They were waiting for restoration, for peace, for God to intervene on their behalf, waiting for something big to happen. But as you know, sometimes in the spiritual life, there are seasons when we don't see the fruit. It's simply about digging trenches and shoveling dung. These seasons are about unlearning and unraveling the layers of toxic religion, painful relationships, destructive ideologies, personal trauma, spiritual renewal. These seasons are for digging and fertilizing. And they are painful because we don't get the instant gratification of a lovely fig. We don't get a pat on the back for the hard work we are doing behind the scenes. The digging of trenches and the shoveling of dung, it's not glamorous work, but it's necessary work. We have to do this work. And I believe that is precisely what this parable is trying to teach us, that the kingdom of heaven is not always found in the miraculous mountaintop moments, but in ordinary moments, in the digging of trenches and the shoveling of dung. And sometimes, like the parable of the woman making the bread, the yeast is active and the dough multiplies And there is more than enough bread for everyone. And then other times we are left with empty branches, empty wombs, empty nests, empty hearts, empty bank accounts, empty promises. We feel angry and confused, afraid and alone, incompetent and unsure of who we are. Perhaps these painstakingly slow and difficult seasons are the very moments where we rely all the more on the grace of the gardener. When we remember that it is not our job to dig the trenches or shovel the dung, and it never was. Author and faith leader Thomas Keating writes, trust in God disregards the evidence of everyday life that God is absent or forgetful of us and brings us into direct contact with the God of every day. You see, we are not forgotten. 
Jesus says again and again, the kingdom of heaven is near. And I know for those Adventists that are listening, oftentimes our mind turns toward the future. It turns towards the future hope of the second coming, which is a beautiful promise. But I believe that this this parable speaks of a deeper truth, one that is harder to define and more complex to take in. I believe that Jesus says when his kingdom is near, he is not only speaking of the life to come, but he is speaking about the life that we have now. You see, the kingdom of heaven was and is and is to come. It is both and. I believe that moments of redemption and healing and awakening are found in the very moments that seem impossible and fruitless and painstakingly mundane. This is not an easy tension to live in, but I promise there is kingdom life in there. And I have found it to be true over and over again in my own life, that the kingdom can be active and present anywhere, even, or maybe, especially in the dirt and the dung, in the shoveling and the waiting. Keating writes, dung in this parable is the symbol of humble hope which keeps trusting in God without trying to analyze or resolve the tension between the hard realities of life and God's sovereignty. And perhaps at first glance, this is not the hope that we expected from Jesus, from this parable. This is certainly not what Jesus's original audience was expecting either. But part of the painful work of turning around is not dismissing something because it is paradoxical or difficult to understand. I believe there is great hope in this parable if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Here are just a few ways that I am finding hope in this short story. First of all, it does not matter if we succeed in our own estimation, or in the eyes of others. God is helping us. He is shoveling the dung and digging the trenches. That's the kind of God we have. The hope is in the fertilizing and the digging. The spiritual life requires a struggle, and the paradox is that we must muck through the dirt and manure to get to the life, right? The kingdom of heaven is not an escape from everyday life. It is finding that God is present in everyday life. I love that. The results are not immediate, but they are worth the digging and the fertilizing and the waiting. I have found that it is not our efforts to shovel and fertilize something that is dead or fruitless. Rather, it is Jesus, the gardener, who came in a divine act of solidarity and took an interest in a barren fig tree. 
Keating sums up nicely what I believe Jesus was trying to communicate in this parable. He writes, the kingdom is right where you are with your bundle of difficulties, your sense of getting nowhere and waiting in prayer for experiences that will never happen. An enlightened faith seems very ordinary. One might scarcely notice it. It accepts the way things are and finds God vibrantly present in the most insignificant situations and unexpected disguises. I love that. The kingdom is right where you are with your bundle of difficulties, your sense of getting nowhere and waiting in prayer for things that will never happen. And I love that last part. An enlightened faith seems very ordinary. One might scarcely notice it. It accepts the way things are and finds God vibrantly present in the most insignificant situations and unexpected disguises. Perhaps if we could stop obsessing about the end product and would instead just enjoy the company and the attentiveness of the gardener, we would be changed. We cannot conjure up fruit. It's, it's a direct result of the gardener's work in our life. So perhaps it is really true what they say. It's not about the destination. That's a piece of it. But it's about the journey. Or maybe, maybe better still, it's about the company that we keep along the way. You see, the gardener is focused on life. And the fruit that a life connected to the life giver produces is abundant life. Jesus says it himself in John 10, 10. He said, I came that they would have life and life more abundant, not just somewhere off in the distance, but now. This parable serves to teach us that the kingdom is active and present right where we are. It is not merely an apocalyptic event or a spiritual state that lifts us above the ordinary struggles of life. It is here. It is now. Thank God. God is not merely with us when we feel at peace or when life circumstances seem to be going well. He is with us when everything seems impossible and all our best efforts fall short. An enlightened faith is ordinary and simple. It does not strive or obsess over difficult questions or dry seasons. The gardener is doing the work of the shoveling and the digging. A mature, fruitful faith is not concerned with its own fruit, but it relies and rests comfortably in the intervention and the care of the good gardener. Perhaps true spiritual reorientation, true repentance, a true turning around simply means accepting the dung. Divine love does not change our circumstances. Divine love changes us and works with us when it appears that all hope is lost. Fruit is important, but it is not our responsibility. Our only job is to unite ourselves with the gardener, to remain connected to the source of life. Everything else is just our empty efforts to produce 
fruit. Wendell Berry, one of my favorite poets and prophets, wisely sums up the lesson of this parable. He writes, The world cannot be discovered by a journey of miles, no matter how long, but only by a spiritual journey, a journey of one inch, very arduous and humbling and joyful, by which we arrive at the ground, at our own feet, and we learn to be at home. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is right here where we are, right here where our feet are planted, in our fear, in our doubt, in our hopelessness, in our drudgery. The gardener has not abandoned us, but patiently tills the earth and fertilizes the soil, and he eagerly waits the transformation. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.